You're listening to Orange Blaze, a Florida Trail podcast. We were, we've always been really clear in our minds that um, this is a this is a podcast for everybody who hikes on the AT, and uh, you know the through hiking experience is, of course, a really important part of that. But as I remind my team on a regular basis, through hikers constitute less than one percent of all the people who set foot on the trail every year. And so we really wanted to make sure that we were trying to speak to everybody, you know, the person who spends two hours on the trail, this person who spends a day or maybe a weekend, um, as well as the lasher or the or the through hiker. And so that was Mills Kelly, historian and host of the Green Tunnel podcast. And I'm Misty Little, your host for this podcast. When the Green Tunnel podcast debuted in late 2021, and I began listening to episodes, I quickly realized this was not your average hiking podcast. Mills Kelly and his team at R2 Studios at George Mason University have put together a stunning series of podcast episodes that rival some of the NPR-style podcasts out there, covering history of the Appalachian Trail from Bitten Mackay to the roller coaster section of the trail, and everything in between. Every few weeks, we get to learn an in-depth history of the AT we may not have known. Mills and his team dig deep into the archives of the ATC and local trail club chapters to come up with their stories. And as you'll hear Mills say, it is easy to fall down rabbit holes to get to new stories. One thing of note in this episode, towards the back half of our conversation, my internet starts dropping out terribly. It is something I'm working to get fixed for future guest interviews, and it's been a pain for a while, but it's gotten progressively worse the last few months. So I did my best to blend in some of the dropouts where it stopped recording Mills and then pick the conversation back up. I hope it isn't too noticeable, but sorry. (laughs) Thanks for being patient on this episode with us, and especially thank you to Mills for putting up with the issue. All right, on to the episode. Well, yeah, I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast or being interested in coming on the podcast. You know, I've listened to your podcast, you know, ever since you put it out, and I, I think I found it through Instagram and you know I'm always looking for new podcasts to listen to and I've really enjoyed the way yours is put together it's much different than you know most podcasts uh, or at least hiking podcasts are out there and uh, I thought my listeners might enjoy hearing from you too so appreciate you coming on yeah it's fun to be here yeah so I mean you can introduce yourself just a little bit and you know where you're from and how you came to be podcasting about Appalachian Trail. Sure. So I'm Mills Kelly. I'm a professor of history at George Mason University, which is in the northern Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C. We're one of Virginia's newest universities, but we're also the largest um, and big and and the most diverse by far. Yeah. Um, So and I actually I grew up about five miles from the campus, although I had moved away long long before I took the job at Mason, but um, so I came back to Northern Virginia from Texas, but um, I, but I grew up here in Northern Virginia and um, you know, it's funny how I ended up getting interested in the Appalachian Trail because I, you know, I was a boy scout as a kid and we had a whole bunch of scoutmasters like at one per year and they were all military guys, most of them World War II vets mm-hmm. and which dates me, you know, was, that was in the early 1970s yeah. and they were World War II vets and, and none of them were from the East coast. And so they would take us backpacking and we, the only thing that stopped us from going backpacking was ice. If it was snowing, cold, just, you know, wear your woolies, you'll be fine. And um, so these guys were tough. And yeah, and they took us hiking on this trail in Shenandoah National Park, which was called the Appalachian Trail. 
I didn't know anything about the Appalachian Trail. My parents were from Georgia and Florida. They didn't know anything about the Appalachian Trail. It was just a trail that we hiked on in Shenandoah National Park, which was called the Appalachian Trail. And in, I don't know, like 1973 or something, um, Ed Garvey, who was a member of the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club, had through-hiked and written a book about it. And he was the first person to write a book, like a whole book about his through-hike. Mm-hmm. And he lived in our neighborhood. And so he came and spoke to our Boy Scout troop about his hike. And I remember watching his slideshow thinking, wow, that trail we hike on, it goes all the way to Georgia and all the way to Maine? <laughs> really? So it was that was like a revelation to me. Um, and then, you know, the trail's just kind of been part of my life ever since. And um, And so, I don't know, 10 years ago, something like that, it was time for me to come up with a new project to work on as a historian and a history professor. And I was at that stage of my career where I could kind of do what I wanted. And so I thought, well, are there any good histories of the Appalachian Trail? And the answer was, yeah, but they're kind of wonky. I mean, they're really good, but they're like on, you know, environmental policy and the Appalachian mm. Trail. And and I just couldn't imagine the average hiker wanting to read them. You know, they're great history, really right. great history, yeah. deeply researched, you know, I mean, just fabulous history, but not really for the general public. And, um, and increasingly, as I've gotten older, I've wanted to, you know, have more of a public audience rather than a scholarly audience. And, and so I, um, I decided I'll start working on the Appalachian Trail because it's what I love and, and, and the archives are close by, like yeah. The archives, yeah. you know, were really nearby and, and it gave me an excuse to go hike. So, Perfect. Know, right. It's like, you know, it, it, I was getting paid to do something I would have done anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, you know, there has been some history books in the last couple of years. I can't remember the name of it, but in the, like two years ago, there was a book that came out that was good, but I also felt like it was missing some chunks. And uh, I would definitely love to see whatever you're coming up with. You know, I know you have a book coming out. We'll talk about later, but I would love to know more and more of that depth of the history that, you know, hikers don't necessarily think about when they're hiking through, like, and that's what I like about your podcast is because you cover some of those aspects of that, that, you know, we don't necessarily think about. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, so I work at the Roy Rosenzweig Center for, uh, even I have a hard, hard time saying it, the Roy Rosenzweig <laughs> Center for History and New Media. And, um, it's a it's this it's actually the first digital history center in the world and so we're about to have our 30th anniversary and and um and so all of our work is very public facing and um we started podcasting well we had a podcast that was kind of it was also kind of wonky it was on you know the kind of work we do and um so it was all inside baseball but then we um we started doing narrative history podcasts two and a half years ago maybe three years ago um, our first show was a diplomatic history show and it went really well. And, and so I decided, well, you know, it'd be kind of awesome to do a podcast on the history of the AT. So, um, and we decided to do narrative history rather than interview, both because there were a lot of interview shows out there already, but also we wanted to tell stories. Yeah, I appreciate that for sure. And you put a lot of effort into creating those stories with sound and uh, narrators, whether they're, you know, the real person in the situation or an actor. Uh, and I appreciate all that background work and that goes into it, but you, you also have 
the tools for that from the university standpoint. So I think that's really cool that you're taking advantage of what is available to you. And I guess we, we can start right there. Like what's kind of planning goes into an episode and how long maybe were you thinking about a podcast before you even got to launching it? Well, so to answer the second question first, I think, you know, for the AT podcast, we planned for probably six months before we started. Um, and, um, you know, we sat down and storyboarded actually three seasons of shows. Oh, like, wow. like what what is the history of the AT and how do we what are the stories that need to be told and how do we want to tell those stories? And then what is sort of three seasons look like? And 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 we and we settled on three seasons because I think by the time we finish season three, you know, we're in the middle of season two. Um, I think by the time we finish season three, we'll kind of we'll have told all the main stories. Okay. And um, you know, who knows? We may go a little further, but I think probably not. And um, so we did all of that kind of planning first, and then we sat down and thought about how we were going to structure the episodes and. You know, and and the main thing I think we did was we we talked a lot about podcasts that we admired, and you know the big shows like you know This American Life or Radio Lab or um, shows like that that are storytelling narrative but serious shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and so you know, and then we asked ourselves like, what do they do? How do they do that? And how do they do it well? And what do we want to try to emulate? And um, and then you know we just started working on it and um, everything we do is you know, very, very collaborative um, because it's, so I'm a faculty member. I have uh, an executive producer, Jeanette Patrick. Um, we've now been able to hire a second producer, Jim and Busky. And, and so, and they're both historians by training, but not faculty members, just they're, they do other kinds of stuff. And, and, but then we have graduate students and undergraduate students who work with us also. And, every single episode is produced by one person. You know, they take on the subject and they figure out who should be interviewed and, and kind of then what the through line of the story is and, and what are the cool moments in that history. And, and they set up the interviews. I do most of the interviews because I'm the subject expert, mm-hmm. um, but they tell me what to ask. And, and so I ask those questions, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, um, and then they go through the, they go through all of the, you know, all the tape, we still call it tape, even though yeah. <laughs> not tape. we go through all the tape and, you know, and figure out like, okay, we really want to use this quotation or that quotation. And it's this very collaborative process of then script building from that. And um, from, you know, from my perspective as an educator, one of the best parts of this is the opportunity it's given our students to, you know, produce episodes and uh, whether they're undergraduates or graduate students. I mean, I, th- I think you would be hard pressed to figure out whether it was an episode I produced or one of the students produced. Yeah, no, I think they all seem blend seamlessly together. It's I, you know, and I obviously don't know the people working in the background personally, so I couldn't tell their their personalities necessarily, but I definitely think they're when you listen to the green tunnel it's the green tunnel and you know what you're what to expect and in each of the episodes whether it's the you know the iconic locations this this the shorter segments or your fuller segments they all they all go together they're a set and uh i definitely appreciate that you can manage to do that (laughs) yeah and you know for me like one of the really funny parts of the whole thing was figuring out what my voice was going to be and um and, you know, because you think of like, okay, your voice is your voice, right? And 
And uh, but before we launched the first, the very first episode, uh, our then executive producer Abby Mullen uh, insisted that I record five versions of the trailer script <laughs> and saying it in five different ways. And then everybody voted, and they all said, "Okay, Mills, this is this is how you're going to do it." And and, and it, the funny part is that's not the one I picked. <laughs> so, so, so actually the, you know, like the, the Mills Kelly host of the podcast, that's a, you know, it's 99%, 98% who I am normally, but it's just a slightly different version than like you would get in my classroom delivery. Right. Right. That's cool. I, I didn't even think about thinking about setting the tone of the podcast by, I mean, I do that too, but I don't think about it in that aspect, but you're right. That is what you do. The other people in working with you, they may or may not necessarily have the same appreciation uh, of the Appalachian Trail. Um, have any of them like kind of grown to like it doing the research or are they just kind of, do they see it maybe like as this is their, this is their job and they're working on it, but they're doing, you know, it's a craft and they enjoy it. I, I think everybody who's worked on it was an outdoor person except for one and um and we we like to kid her um and say that season four is going to be when we raise enough money for her to hike the trail and then report you know from her through hike and mm -hmm. and which makes her slightly anxious because she's like slept in a tent once <laughs> so, and and that was at the at kickoff last year so <laughs> that was the only time she'd ever been you know, she was at, you know, at Springer and that's the only time she'd ever been in a tent. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I take care of the Manassas Gap Shelter, which is one of the original shelters. And and so we've hiked up there, you know, a couple of times. And um, and so the first time we went, everybody had been hiking on the Appalachian Trail at least a little bit, except for this one person. And uh, and she had a great time. So so now she's we kid her that like, oh, yeah, you're a hiker now. Yes. But, <laughs> um, so but she when we started, she said, I like to think of myself as an indoor cat. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. that's pretty funny. Yeah. Think, yeah. There's a lot, a lot of indoor cats out there. I've come right. to realize. <laughs> right. Well, you've been around the AT since the early seventies. Um, have you finished the trail? Have you done, or do you, have you mostly done sections in the Virginia Southern section? Have you, have you done the whole thing at all? No, I have, one of these days I'll get to to put all my sections together into the completed trail, but um, I think I'm gonna have to retire before that happens. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so I think I'm I think I'm over 700 miles now, and so you know, a really long section in the Mid Atlantic, and then most of Georgia and parts kind of in the Asheville area. I have some really good friends in the Asheville area who I stay with for a long weekend every spring. And then I do a section there. And um, I've done some in Vermont, a little bit in the whites, um, you know, kind of, and, and some bits in the really fun parts of Pennsylvania with all the rocks. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, uh, so just, it, it's a little over 700 miles, I think. And, you know, eventually I'll, I'll get there, but like I said, I'm going to have to retire first. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's when I, we through hiked in 2010 and seeing all the section hikers, you know, the, the men and mostly men, there were some women, but, and they're, you know, fifties and early sixties and they just, they've been at it for 20, 25 years. And I'm just like, man, you do what you got to do. And eventually you get it done and you have this great memory to look back on and, you know, uh, you can appreciate putting it all together. So however you get it done. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the people who I think had such a great strategy, he, he was in his fifties and every year he hiked for 30 days. 
He and so he started in Georgia. He hiked 30 days. And he when he was at like day 27, he called his wife and said, Here's where I want you to pick me up. Mm-hmm. And then the next summer he came out and he started there and he did the next 30 days. And and when I met him, he was in Vermont. And so he had, you know, two more 30 day sections and he was done. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Works out if you can if you can swing it for sure. I want to go back to the podcast a little bit again you're a historian and you, you reach out to, you wanted to switch more to the general audience and podcasting. When you're back to laying out this, your seasons of the podcast, I guess, how are you choosing what stories to tell? And, and especially you breaking it down with the iconic locations, which are the shorter episodes, but uh, even the longer ones, what do you, what goes into thinking about how you want to share that with listeners? Yeah, that's a really great question, Misty. We so the first year it was really about introducing the trail because we were we've always been really clear in our minds that um, this is a this is a podcast for everybody who hikes on the AT, and uh, you know the through hiking experience is of course a really important part of that. But as I remind my team on a regular basis, through hikers constitute less than one percent of all the people who set foot on the trail every year, and. So we really wanted to make sure that we were trying to speak to everybody, you know, the person who spends two hours on the trail, this person who spends a day or maybe a weekend, um, as well as the lasher or the, or the through hiker. And so, um, so, so when we thought about it in those terms, we realized, you know, we have to really be able to explain the trail and its, and its experience, um, you know, to the person who's only going to spend a day. They're just going to go, you know, maybe just go for a nice day hike. And, and, um, and so the first season, we really wanted to introduce kind of all the main features of the history of the trail. So, you know, we started with the, you know, the, the founding of the trail and then about the communities along the trail before the trail and, and, and things like that. And, um, this season, we've had a kind of overarching theme, um, in our minds, which is about who is the trail for? And, um, and so, and how does that translate into action over time? And so, you know, we did the, you know, the episode on, um, well, we just did our favorite, one of our favorite episodes on the crap Yeah, and, I enjoyed that one. That was fun. <laughs> and, and you know, and it's it, it, one of the things that you learn when you spend time in the archives is that when, you know, the trail builders were constructing the trail in the 1920s and the 1930s, they were really terrified that they were going to put all this effort into building the trail and then nobody was going to hike on it. And I mean, they were really worried about that. They wrote about it. They wrote each other about this all the time. And, and so putting privies at the shelters was one of the ways of encouraging people to go out in the woods and in, you know, 1937 or whatever. And, um, and that's still true. And, and so, because it makes the trail more accessible for everybody. And, and so this season we've been, you know, kind of thinking about that as a overarching question. And, and then uh, the third season is going to be a little bit more focused on the individual experience. So, uh, you know, what's specifically what, how has people's individual experience changed over time? And um, so for instance, we're going to have an episode about really important female hikers who are not named Gatewood. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and, and, um, we, we joke about, you know, we were looking at our, our layout of episodes and we realized, you know, like we really do need to talk about Grandma Gatewood. Um, but, um, but you know, like she's 
everybody thinks she was the first person to first woman to hike the whole trail and she was the third and you know nobody remembers mary kilpatrick who was the first now she was a section hiker but she hiked every step of the trail in the 1930s or dorothy laker who hiked the trail three times in the 1950s and 60s and then let me just tell you grandma gatewood hated dorothy laker oh goodness <laughs> she she used to refer to her as that woman oh my in, in fact i have grandma gatewood on tape saying well you know that woman took up with men during her hike. Oh, scandalous. <laughs> Very scandalous, right? So so that's kind of the way we, you know, we laid it out in in the in the big picture. And then, you know, the iconic locations, we we hadn't really planned on doing that initially. And then we realized, you know, we're gonna come out with an episode every three weeks, a big episode. And and so we want we wanted to kind of keep our listeners engaged in between those bigger episodes. And it it gave people a nice little like chunk they could bite off and you know chew on for just a little bit you know mm-hmm. seven minutes ten minutes and um, but it, but what we hadn't realized was that in doing that it was going to put us in much closer touch with the local communities and the local trail clubs and it's been really wonderful and and so like if you listen to the episode about the Washington Monument in Maryland you know the guy we spoke to um, who's responsible for that stretch of the trail. Um, as you know, as the PATC volunteer there, he told this fabulous story about how the that that sort of beehive shaped monument was originally the result of you know people in the nearby town getting drunk on the Fourth of July and deciding <laughs> we need to build a monument. And, you know, and like you can just see them like all charging up the mountain and picking up rocks and starting to build something. Like who knew that story? It's not in any of the the sort of standard histories of the trail, but we verified his story, and it is in fact how it got started. Um, and like our, uh, one of our producers, Bridget, she just has so much fun at the Lakeshore house in Monson. And, you know, that was just, it was such, and, and the folks there, uh, were so thrilled to, to be interviewed for the show. And so, so in some ways the iconic look it, it, well, and like we just, today, we just dropped the episode on the roller coaster when I started looking into it and I've hiked the roller coaster three times. Don't ask me why. And, um, <laughs> there's, there's no, there's no good reason why you would do it three times. And, but I started asking around and somebody said to me, you know, I'm a volunteer with PATC and somebody said, well, you know, Chris Brenton who laid out the roller coaster and is still the trail boss. He's still doing it. You should talk to Chris. So, so turns out we interviewed the guy who created the roller coaster in the 1980s. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I I didn't, I didn't know that episode had come out yet, but I now I'm very intrigued. I can't wait to listen to it because the roller coaster, you know, it has that, you know, has the warning when you approach it and you hear all the lore about it. And um, I remember I had ran into a section hiker and she said, yeah, the last thing I have is a roller coaster. And she was like all terrified. And so I had built it up in the, my head and I get there. I'm like, this isn't that bad. I mean, it's nothing we haven't done already. <laughs> yeah, but you'd walked almost a thousand That's miles. That's true. Already. That is true. That is true. You had trail legs. The yes. average person who hikes a roller coaster does not have trail legs. Yeah. That's true. So I'm excited to listen to that now and get that perspective for sure. So speaking of all the episodes that you've put together so far, and I you know you're planning some for next year as well. Um, but so far, what has been the favorite uh, subject you've covered or, or been, or even favorite episode that you've recorded? So I think the, I think the best work that we've done is this is the first two episodes in some ways, because it was, it was really an opportunity 
to bring to life, like the first episode was an opportunity to bring to life Benton Mackay and, and Myron Avery and their very different ways of thinking about the trail and, and their very ways, different ways of thinking about each other. And, um, and, and it was like, for me, it was really fun to go into the AT museum when it was closed uh, for the season and just kind of stand there in front of Myron Avery's measuring wheel that he, he's, it's like in every photo of Myron Avery's that measuring wheel. And, and there it is in the museum. And so to just kind of talk about it, um, it, you know, this really important artifact while I had the museum all to myself. So that was really fun. Um, I, I will say like as a podcast producer, I think the very best segment of um, any of our shows is in episode two, kind of in the middle the, the part about Roush Gap. And that's because we found the perfect piece of music and, you know, we we're just searching for something that would like a song that would encapsulate the experience of this coal town, which had died. And now the AT runs through the ghost town. And, and it turns out there's this performer, um, Irene Mills, who had done a song that she performs regularly called Pennsylvania coal. And I found it on YouTube and, you know, we don't steal people's work. Yeah. So, so I contacted her agent and said, you know, we don't have any money to pay Irene, but can we, can we um, use this song? And she wrote back right away and said, oh, Irene's listened to one of your episodes. She, she listened to the first episode of the show. She loves it. Absolutely, you can use it. And that piece of music is just exactly right. Um, for the And so um, so I think that it, just in terms of like the best moment for me in the shows has been that. Um, I, I'll say we have, um, we have an episode that we're working on right now that I think is probably going to be my favorite. Um, and and it's about race in the trail and um you know i can't really say yeah 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 <laughs> this, like what it's going to be but but i'll just say it's going to be the most challenging work that we will do in all three seasons um because there's a piece of the story that's really disturbing and um which i just found in the archives one day it's going to make people think really hard and like we're co we have a co-host who's a uh a woman of color who threw act in 2008. And, um, and so she's really helping us navigate this part of the story. And so it's going to be, I think that one's going to be really, really great. And is that going to be for this season or next season? Yeah. Yeah. It's going to come out in the spring. Okay. Perfect. Okay. No, I appreciate you broaching that topic i think it's a topic that doesn't get discussed a lot in any through hiking circle <laughs> so i'm i'd be very interested to hear how that goes but you also mentioned digging into the archives and to find this story and you know without you don't need to tell me about that because you're going to have that episode soon but I, I am curious like what the research has revealed about the at that you didn't know previously obviously you bring some of that out in the, in the episodes but has it really shown just how much is like hiding out there about the AT? Like what, what's that been like for you? So a couple of things, I mean, I've spent, I don't know, I guess I started in the archives in, in Harper's Ferry. Well, the ATC archives were actually in Ranson near Harper's Ferry, but, and now they've moved to my university just recently, but, um, but I can't see them because they're being processed. Um, <laughs> so I have to wait until the spring, but uh, you know, the, the thing about archives, is they're really dangerous places because they're just full of rabbit holes. And, you know, it's like, you know, Alice sees that rabbit saying he's late and he jumps down the rabbit hole and she jumps down with him and and then has all these adventures. And as a, as a historian, you go into an archive knowing that there are all these rabbit holes there. 
and and mostly you tell yourself, I will not jump in the rabbit hole. <laughs> you know, like I have I have a purpose, I have to focus and all that. But the, these rabbit holes just keep opening up in front of you. And and so like our episode from last year about Eiler Larson, the you know, the guy who ended up being the greeter of Laguna Beach, that was a total rabbit hole. <laughs> and and like I found him in the archives actually of the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club. There was just this photo of this crazy guy from the 1930s with long hair and a beard. I mean, he looked like a present day through hiker. Um, but in the 1930s, men shaved on the trail every day mm-hmm. and they kept their hair cut short and they didn't look like him. And and I was and it was just this crazy photo. And so I thought, I have to scan this photo just because it's a cool picture. And so I scanned it and I I moved on and I didn't really think more about it. And then I was in the archives of the ATC and I find a letter from this guy to the ATC saying in 1930, saying, I intend to hike the entire Appalachian Trail from Maine to Florida. He thought it went to Florida. <laughs> and um, and so I would appreciate receiving any maps and guides that you could send to me. And, and I thought, wow, that's that guy in that crazy photograph I saw. And and I just kept running into Eiler Larson. And so one day I Googled him and there he is. He's got a Wikipedia page. He was the greeter of Laguna Beach, California for 25 years. Oh, wow. And and, and they're like statues of him all over Laguna Beach. And the more I looked into him, the crazier the story gets. And and so I actually I had a little bit of money in a research account. And so in January, I flew out to Laguna and I and, and I interviewed three people who remembered him from when they were kids. And wow. and one of them who thought he was Santa Claus, you know, and <laughs> and and it's just and I keep finding him. I just, he keeps like popping up in front of me. And one of these days I'm going to have to write a book about the guy. But um, so, so that's an example of like, there's just all, and, and, and so it's like, there are all these wonderful things that hide in the archives, all these wonderful stories Um, or they're challenging things, you know, like what's going to come out in our race episode. But, um, but also you know, like I was working in the, and it's also related to the question of race. I was, um, I was working in the the archives of the Smoky Mountains Hiking Club and looking at their, I like to look at the sort of the membership books of the old trail clubs. Mm-hmm. And until 1960, there's said membership in the Smoky Mountains Hiking Club is open to all white people of good character. Wow. So, you know, it's like, yeah. there it is. There, yeah. but you know, okay. Tennessee was segregated in 1950 or whatever mm-hmm. um, and so private organizations were segregated too and um, so it would have taken a real act of bravery to not be segregated in Knoxville Tennessee in 1955 and so so you know there's that kind of stuff but but some of the really interesting things also are just about the individual hiker stories because people wrote the ATC all the time about their hikes they're just there are probably a thousand letters in the archives from hikers saying, I want to report about my hike. You know, I hiked from, I hiked from, you know, Max Patch to Damascus. And I want to tell you that about the trail conditions and about what I experienced and, you know, and, and, and how much I love the AT or how much the, the weather was just the worst thing ever, you know, or, um, or can't you get the mice out of the shelters? <laughs> people, people complain about the mice in the shelters all the time. Like, like somebody can do something. about Right. That. So, so, or, or just like just last month I was up at uh, Dartmouth because the Dartmouth outing club takes care of a segment of the trail. And, and I was reading through the shelter logs from the sixties and seventies 
uh, because that's the moment when backpacking really took off. Mm-hmm. And you can see it in the shelter logs. Before 1965, almost all the people writing in the shelter logs were Dartmouth students who were going to their, you know, their cabins um, just, mm-hmm. you know, for the weekend or whatever. And then starting in the late 60s, you start seeing these people writing about how they're hiking long distances on the Appalachian Trail, like from New Jersey to Maine or something like that. And then they get replaced by people who start saying, you know, I've hiked all the way from Georgia. And um, and so you can actually see the through hiking experience and the long distance hiking experience beginning to appear in in those trail uh, shelter logs. And it's and that's a story that, you know, it doesn't appear in any book. Yeah, because, you know, so like, what was Misty Little's hike like? Did you write a book about it? I have not. Okay. I, have tra- I have trail journals on my blog, but I have not written a book about it. Right. But so, but so, you know, if I, if I followed you through the shelter logs in the various archives, I could tell a very interesting story about what your hike was like, because if you were one of those hikers and most long distance hikers do write something um, in the shelters where they stop, I could start piecing together what your hike was like and, um, you know, and sort of track your emotions during the course of your hike. Like you were in a fabulous mood while you were in Southern Virginia, but by the time you got to Northern Virginia, you seemed kind of depressed, you know? (laughs) And, and so, so those, those shelter logs are an incredibly valuable um, window into what the hiker experience was like, and not just the through hikers, because, you know, day hikers rode in the shelter logs also. Right. Now, do I've always wondered, do all of the shelter logs get kept? I've always been worried that, I mean, nobody's going to go back and look at mine, except maybe you, <laughs> but I've always wondered if, uh, you know, they get taken home with the trail maintainer or the shelter maintainer, or they go back to the club or how that works. Do you know? Yeah. So what happens with the shelter logs is that they go back to the clubs and some of the clubs send them on to the Appalachian Trail Conservancy archives. Um, and like, if they don't have archives themselves, increasingly, some of them now send them to the Appalachian Trail Museum to store. Um, so in the archives there, or they're just in the club archives. And I will say that the, it's, it's been very kind of up and down as to how consistently they were saved. And, or then like in the case, this kills me, the, my predecessor is archivist of the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club, at some point decided that there were just too many of them. And so he threw out all but the last like seven years worth. Oh, no. And I just said, no, you didn't actually do that. And he said, oh, you know, it's just full of stuff like hikers are writing about cheeseburgers and bowel movements. Nobody wants to read that. <laughs> and I'm like, actually, yes, people do want to know about that. You yeah. Know? Oh. Uh, so like we have a big in, in the PATC territory, which is, you know, 260 miles of the trail and a whole bunch of shelters prior to 2015 or something like that. There just aren't any, uh, it's a tragedy, but, um, but like the Appalachian trail museum has over 1200 of them now. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, There's a good, there's a story out there. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good to hear. <laughs> well, okay. So you're, t- you're going to all these trail clubs and I was going to ask about your collaboration. Um, is that pretty, been pretty good to collaborate with all the little different trail clubs and the ATC themselves? Yeah. You know, I have to say it's been really wonderful. I've met so many volunteers and, uh, and, and 
you know, we all have one thing in common. We all love the Appalachian Trail. And and so we start from a place where we have something to who laid out the roller coaster. Like it was so much fun to talk to Chris and because he's been a trail supervisor for close to 40 years. And mm-hmm. um or or like for the Crappalachian Trail episode, you know, John Hedrick from the PATC, who the guy who described himself as the chief crapper. Um He's a retired like general or something like that. And um, but now that he's retired, he just like builds privies for hikers. And so but all up and down the trail, people have just been so great to work with. And, uh, you know, the ATC has really bent over backwards to to give me access to stuff. And because uh, they want the story to be told also. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's so much so much data per se history and not enough people to cover it all. So you're just another vessel of to be able to get that information out to the public. And I, I'm glad that they've been helpful for you and, and getting all of that done. I think I certainly appreciate it. And I hope other listeners uh, have told you how much they appreciate it. I don't know if you've run into anybody telling you that already. You know, it's really, it's really funny. Um, it, to me, it's like strange and funny. Um, increasingly when I run into people on the trail and I start chatting with them, I've had, I don't know, three, four people now say, wait, are you Mills Kelly? And I'm like, um, in fact, I am. <laughs> Actually, what I say to them is, my name is Mills Kelly, and I'm your host. <laughs> and so and they're like, oh, my God. You know, and it's just so it's really funny because um, historians don't typically get that. I'll right. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> So you have the podcast project, but you also have the AppalachianTrailHistory.org. What is your goal with that? And maybe talk a little bit about that side of this trail history. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a digital historian. And um, and so when I started working on the history of the trail, I spent I spent a couple of years just really digging in and learning it. And then I started teaching courses about the history of the trail because it's really, in many ways, the history of the Appalachian Trail is the history of the United States in the 20th century. You know, pick a subject, it's reflected in the trail. And, you know, gender, race, the economy, rural depopulation, government authority over land, land preservation, you know, environmental degradation, you know, technology, take your pick. It's all there in the history of the Appalachian Trail. And so it, it was a great way to teach 20th century American history in a different way. And um, instead of like, okay, now we're going to talk about the Eisenhower administration, um, <laughs> you know, and um, and it was a great way to get my students out of the classroom and onto the trail. But I wanted them to do really serious archival research themselves, and then make that research available through a digital platform. And so that's really the impetus behind AppalachianTrailHistory.org is is as a place for my students to post their own work. Okay. So, so some of it's my work, you know, it's like the big exhibits, those are mine, but but those are really just to give the students exemplars of how you do digital public history. And and then there are, I don't know, 30 plus student exhibits in there and um, on topics that like I wouldn't have picked. Right. You right. know, there's, there's a great, great student exhibit about disability in the Appalachian Trail. There's a, there's a great one about poor rural populations of the mountains and um, and the student who picked that was she was from um, outside of Toccoa Falls, Georgia, and you know in Appalachia, not Appalachia. Yeah, and, right. Um, and uh, you know, and she had gone off to college, and everybody accused her of being a hillbilly, and it really made her mad, and um, just because of her accent. And mm-hmm. so she decided that that's what she was going to focus on. 
And so it's really been great to give them the room to do the kind of work that they're interested in as opposed to the kind of work that their professor tells them to be interested in. Right, right. And so I guess all of that's also backed up through the university. So whatever you're, you or the students are producing, that that's going to be there hopefully in perpetuity in some fashion. Yeah. So um, all of our digital projects, you know, they, they reach a kind of end of life uh, because either the software needs to be updated and there's no money to do that or um, or just the audience has faded away for the project. Mm -hmm. And and so at that point, then our library has a really great digital archive and and they capture the site into their digital archive and and keep it in perpetuity. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. All right. That's kind of like the Wayback Machine, but for the college. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. Well, to move on a little bit from the podcast, I do want to talk about your upcoming Virginia's Lost Appalachian Trail book. And I think you've written some other books as well that aren't focused on the AT, but maybe talk about that a little bit, what you've put into it and, you know, yeah, just sell us on the book so we can buy it. Yeah, I, I hope you do. Um, yeah. So February 20th, it's available, but you can pre-order it now. Um, so, but the, you know, this is another example of a rabbit hole. I was in the archives of the ATC looking for something, I can't remember now, and I find this letter from a guy in Franklin County, Virginia, to Myron Avery, the chairman of the ATC, about the trails route along the border between Franklin and Floyd County. And okay, that made my ears perk up a little bit because I'm originally from Franklin County, and where... <laughs> The, the local motto used to be Franklin County, Virginia, moonshine capital of the world. And, <laughs> um, and there's actually a book called The Wettest County in America and uh, about about Franklin County because it was really a big moonshine area. Uh, but we moved away from there when I was five. So really, I'm from Northern Virginia, but, you know, I was yeah. first five years, Franklin County. And, and I knew that the Appalachian Trail did not go through Franklin County, Virginia. And, and so I was like, what? <laughs> what is this? And so I start, you know, looking more carefully in the folder that I was in, and there are a whole series of letters about the trail going through Floyd County, Franklin County, Carroll County, um, you know, uh, the the um, Dan River Gorge, crossing into North Carolina, at um, you know, down near Galax, Virginia. And I was thinking, you know, this makes no sense to me because that is not where the Appalachian Trail goes. It goes, you know, goes from McAfee Knob. If you're going south, mm -hmm. it goes from, you know, from McAfee Knob, heads off toward toward Parisburg, and then heads down into the Grayson Highlands, and eventually to Damascus. And and so what I found was that that the route that the trail takes today is a post World War II route. Um, that from 1930 to 1952, if you were hiking south, you crossed McAfee Knob, and then when you get to the highway you took a sharp left turn and started heading due south and hmm. just on the other side of Roanoke. And, and the trail then went up and over what's called uh, poor mountain. And that took you down onto the great plateau of Southwestern Virginia, which is Floyd County, Carroll County. And, um, and, and that's where the trail went. It's largely th that side of the new river. It's largely the route of the Blue Ridge Parkway today, but um and it dropped down into the Dan River Gorge, the head where the headwaters of the Dan River are, and went over something called the Pinnacles of Dan. And I don't know why it's called the Pinnacles, plural, because there's only one. <laughs> <laughs> but it's this like pyramid-shaped mountain 
in this really narrow gorge. And it's 1,800 feet from the base of the mountain, the stream at the base of the mountain to the pinnacle, and then back right back down. And hikers, uh, people like Earl Schaefer and Gene Espy and others, they describe that as the second most difficult part of the entire trail, other hmm. than other than Mahusik Notch, mm-hmm. and um, and that that and that it was harder than Katahdin, and wow. um, and so uh, and I and, and I was just kind of entranced by this idea that the trail took this whole different route, and what I found was it was three hundred miles of the trail, which at the time was fifteen percent of the entire trail. Wow, took an entirely different route, and then in nineteen fifty two the ATC moved the trail 50 to 60 miles to the West. Um, so this, it wasn't just like one of those reroutes where they, you know, take it on this side of the Ridge instead of that side of the Ridge, mm-hmm. 50 to 60 miles. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so an entirely different route and, and essentially kind of ripped the trail out of those rural communities that had helped create it. Hmm. And, and so, so I just needed to know more about this. You know, sometimes, you know, you run into something and you just need to know more. And the only way to find out more than what was in the archives was to go there. And and so I got in my car and I drove the five hours down to the to Floyd and and I just started talking to people and they would tell me like, you know, like go into a diner. Did you, did you know that the Appalachian Trail used to go like right in front of your diner? Really? It went right in front of our diner? And <laughs> and, and And then somebody would say, oh, wait. You know, Frank, he, his uncle used to work on the old trail, you know, and so wow. then I would like talk to Frank and he would put me in touch with his uncle and, you know, and so like I have become really good friends with a guy named Ralph Lee Barnard, Ralph's 84 this year, I think, and um, his grandfather who raised him, John Barnard, was in charge of the trail in the Dan River Gorge and hikers used to stay before they went down into the gorge and up and over the pinnacles, they would stay at the Barnard farm and sleep in the barn. And Ralph was a teenager when this, he like, he can tell stories about when he was a teenager. And one of his jobs was to go in the barn and make sure the, the hikers weren't smoking in the barn <laughs> you know, because they might set the barn on fire. You know? Yeah. And, um, and Ralph, I just like found Ralph by talking to people and we're really, I would say pretty good friends. And, yeah. and he, like one day he said, oh, you know, I have some pictures I want to show you. And and he goes back and he pulls out a shoebox that's got pictures, you know, like that was in his closet. And it's got pictures from the 1930s and the 1940s of AT hikers. Nobody's ever seen these pictures except Ralph's family. Wow. And so now they're in my book. And there's includes like one photo of Myron Avery with his measuring wheel standing in front of the Barnard's house. Wow. And, uh, you know, and. Or like I talked to a guy named Doug Bell, who's um, he doesn't remember the trail, but his um, his grandfather, or his, he was also raised by his grandfather, and um, it went right across his grandfather's farm. And his grandfather actually moved the trail markers around so that hikers had to walk right past his front door, <sighs> and because he wanted to talk to them, but also he would like sell them some eggs and milk and yeah. stuff like that. But my my favorite was the way you got across the New River on the old trail was there was not a bridge. You had to cross on what was called Dixon's Ferry and Dixon's Ferry sounds like more than it was. Uh, it was a little flat bottom river boat that somebody would pull across the river. Mm-hmm. And char- one of the Dixon family members would pull you across and they charged you a nickel and um, which I guess would be like five bucks today. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if you were coming South, 
you just went up to the door of their house and you knocked and somebody, one of the Dixons, you know, the dad, the mom, somebody would pull you across. If you were coming north, you had to stand on the far side of the river and yell until somebody <laughs> heard you. And the thing is, the new river there is easily 75 yards wide. Oh my goodness. And so so I taught I interviewed Gene Espy, the you know, the second through hiker. I interviewed him in 2019. And I said, I said, Gene, do you remember that? And he's like, Oh, I was over there on the other side of the river for a while. <laughs> and he said, I was starting to think I was gonna have to swim, you know. Wow. And, and so then somebody came and pulled him across and and then he sat on the porch and you know and had had a glass of iced tea and then went on his way. And he told me at the time that he remembered that there was a little girl who was hiding behind her mother's skirts the whole time and like peering at him with big eyes, you know. Well, um, and that little girl was Sally Rakes Dixon, uh, who I'm also friends with now. And um, she's in her late 70s. And she remembers Gene Espy from when she was a little girl. And here's why he was here's why she was scared of him. He had a beard. And and her father had told her, you have to stay away from men with beards. Now, remember, this is 1951. Yeah. You have to stay away from men with beards because they're either hobos or communists. Right. That's hilarious. So the book is both it's both a history of the, the original route of the Appalachian Trail in southwestern Virginia, uh, which did not go through the Grayson Highlands. It went on Iron Mountain, which is just north of the Grayson Highlands. Like mm-hmm. if you take the Iron Mountain Trail today, you're on the original route of the of the AT. But um, so it's both a history of the of the original route of the trail, but it's also a history of the legacy of the trail because you know the Appalachian Trail left that route seventy years ago, and these folks still remember. Wow, it's, it's still it's still part of the fabric of their lives, and and they're they're sad about it because they wish it was still there. And they're like streets called like Appalachian Trail Way and stuff like that. And um, and and so it's also a book about what happens when the trail goes away. Mm-hmm. You know, what happens to a rural community when the trail leaves? So how many years did it take you to put this together? Well, I think I found that letter originally in the spring of 2019 or the fall of 2018. So we'll just say four years. Okay. Interrupted a little bit by, I don't know, like there was this pandemic. So. <laughs> Right. Slowed me down a little. (laughs) Right. It would have taken three years if it weren't for COVID. Right. So why did they, I mean, I guess we'll find out in the book. I won't ask you this. I was going to ask why they moved it to the West, but maybe you tell us that the books will save it for that. Okay. So I guess in all of this with, you know, your research with the Appalachian Trail, you know, in all these multifaceted avenues, do you have any final thoughts for listeners uh you know about producing your podcast that you want people to know about you know a little tidbit about the appalachian trail you know why they should give green tunnel a listen um interviews with people who really have you know critical things to say critical as an important things to say about you know the the subjects that we're talking about so like we when we were doing the episode about food um and trail food we, um, you know, we interviewed this historian in New York who is a historian of eating and the United, you know, food in the United States. And in particular, she was, you know, she knows a lot about trail food because one of her children 
I can't remember if she was a through hiker or just a lasher, but, you know, I spent a lot of time on the Appalachian Trail. And so as a food historian, she like was really interested in what her daughter was eating and during her hiking. And um, but like she could tell us about the history of, you know, when did uh, dehydrating food become a mass production thing? When did freeze drying happen? And, you know, that that sort of stuff. And um, and so the the stories that we tell are really deeply researched, but then they're also stories. And, you know, uh, as, as a historian, I get this all the time. People will say to me, oh, God, you know, I love history, but my history classes, they were the worst. My professors or my high school teachers, God, they were so boring. And, and so we are the antithesis of boring. <laughs> you know, we go out of our way to tell really uh, what, what we hope are captivating stories from all of that research. And, and also... You know, we try to keep the podcast to between 30 and 40 minutes. So it's a, it's like a nice, you know, it's, it's a nice length. We're just mm-hmm. listening to, you know, getting a nice hit of history and then moving on to something else. Right. Or, right. or you could just binge the whole season. And- yeah. Yeah. Which I, you know, hikers and they're hiking on the trail all day. I know that they, many of them go through episodes oh, yeah. like, you know, like it's candy. Um. Yeah, no, I loved history. I was I, definitely interested in history. So I kind of lap up these episodes and I'm just like, wow, this is really cool. And to be able to do that, I, you obviously have the resources and it's, it's, your, it's your, your job and your interest already. So I definitely appreciate you putting the podcast together and uh, sharing a little bit more about the Appalachian Trail. And, you know, some people don't read books and this is a, another way of just getting similar information out to them and uh yeah it's great i i love it is <laughs> it people don't read books anymore i think i think they read fewer books but i think they still read a fair amount of books but but it is a um a podcast is such a great way to speak to people and um i was actually telling my students not long ago in in one of my classes that you know podcasting is is one of the most intimate forms of communication because most people listen to a podcast through earbuds and so you're like literally talking to them from inside their head and one of my students looked at me and she said you realize that sounds really creepy right <laughs> but i don't think of it as creepy i think of it as a great way to communicate well you know and some of the, i have a couple of podcasts that i listen to and they're like well we're your, we're your podcast best friends we've never met you but i know you listen to us every week and i think that's how it is with with podcasts you get to know mm-hmm. people even if you don't it's a pseudo relationship but you know yeah. it's still there so right well where can folks find your podcast and if they want to do any more information uh your website and I'll, I will put this all in my show notes, but if you can just tell it over the air. Sure. So, of course, we're on every podcast platform you could possibly imagine, you know, Apple, Spotify, Google, whatever. And um, But in addition to that, uh, you can go to the website. We actually have a podcast studio in my digital center uh, called R2 Studios. So R, the number two, studios.org. Perfect. And you've got social media links as well. I think Green Tunnel oh, Pod. Yeah. Yeah. Green Tunnel Pod on Instagram. And um, and now we've been posting the shows on YouTube. They're not videos. They're just, you know, audio files audio. on YouTube. And, and that's the YouTube channel is R2 Studios also. 
Okay, perfect. Well, Mills, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me tonight and share a lot of the background uh, of history of the Appalachian Trail. I know you do a lot of work to produce these episodes and I appreciate everything you're doing and I can't wait to read the book because I'm definitely very interested in that. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me on your show. I really admire what you're doing. That's it for my conversation with Mills Kelly, host of the Green Tunnel Podcast. Hope you learned some interesting historical tidbits about the Appalachian Trail and consider adding the podcast to your feed to listen to while hiking this season. I'll have links where to find Mills and his podcast and upcoming book in the show notes for the podcast at orangeblaze.thegardenpathpodcast.com. You can find me at Orange Blaze Podcast on Instagram and official Orange Blaze Podcast on Facebook. Thanks for listening and happy hiking.